Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Now, today we are talking about uh, politics in a way. So we're going to talk about, you know, what if we invested in new types of political leaders? And what if we actually loved politicians? which sounds really interesting, actually, to me. And we have a great guest who I've known for a few years, Lisa Witter, who's going to be taking us on that journey and uh, and giving us a little bit of insight of, of what would happen if we all did love politicians. Now, Lisa is the CEO, Chief Executive Officer of the Apolitical Foundation, and she's also the co-founder of Apolitical. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI, Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, today it's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Lisa Witter, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Apolitical Foundation and also co-founder of Apolitical. So Lisa, big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today and tell us a little bit about what the world would look like if we did all love politicians. Well, thank you very much. I want that question to like marinate in the listener's mind right now. Like what, what are the first sort of words and thoughts that come to mind when I say love politicians? And then I like to take back after they've had some swimming in those visualizations and those words um, and give you a little context about what we do. So my whole life has been at the intersection of politics and policy, and I love politics. And the reason I love politics is, is really that place where you get to go to the people and say, how do we want to live with one another? That's what politics is about, is about building that mandate, that way we want to live. And then when you win elections, you get to go into office and you get to deliver on that promise. That's that's the way it's supposed to work. So when I co-founded Apolitical about seven years ago, we really thought of it as a democracy flywheel. So at the bottom of that flywheel, you need all parts of it to work. The citizens elect the politicians. And by the way, politicians are citizens. They come from that space. Then the politicians then give the mandate to the civil servants. The civil servants then deliver on democracy based on that mandate. So in order for democracy to work, all of that has, has to work. All of that plus other things need to work. So we co-founded Apolitical, which is a global peer-to-peer -peer learning network. We have more than 170 countries represented, 160,000 public servants, where they come to Apolitical regularly um, to get inspiration and ideas about how to make government work um, in the 21st century. And that's a for-profit company. And we really wanted to start there because government controls 40% of the GDP. And, you know, at best, Alberto, we have 18th century politics, 19th century institutions, 20th century um, technology for 21st century problems and solutions. And so you have to look at what's the machinery of how we deliver on democracy. And that's the public servants and that's the for-profit company. Our big vision is to build kind of that, we call her the Civia for government or Alexa for government, sort of the, the, the place where people in government can come and find those ideas. 
But that's incomplete, that flywheel, if you don't go to the place where I would say trust is probably most broken in the system is in the political system. And so what we do is we have a foundation um, and I'm the CEO of that foundation and the company has given options to the foundation. So when we exit, we have a sustainability model. And for those listening who work in philanthropy or social entrepreneurship, you know the importance of building in sustainability that's mission aligned um, sustainability. And I'm really proud to be a, a political entrepreneur that's really thinking about how to, how to make the system work like that. And basically what the foundation does is it really looks at you know, how do we change and support and add to who goes into politics? So people who um, are intrinsically motivated, more diverse people, how do we prepare them so that when they go into politics, they're ready? And as you probably know, anyone listening, it's hard these days to go into politics. You raise your hand, four out of five women get psychological or physical threats when they run for office. So this is hard stuff. So how do we prepare them? What's the personal leadership journey they need to go on? How do they need to learn about politics and how do they need to do um, policymaking? And then once they're in, how do we support them so that they can be great um, politicians? Now, we can have a long conversation about what great um, politicians mean. The, the last thing I'll say is I, I've been in this space for 25 years. So I built my first political training institute 25 years ago. And what I do know, since many of your listeners are in the philanthropy space, is that everything we care about in philanthropy whether that's climate change, inequality, education reform, early childhood, all of these things. You can't take the politician out of the equation. You just can't unless we have politicians taken over by AI. So unless we invest in um, new types of politicians to join great people in the system already, we're not going to solve the problems we need to get to the SDGs. We need that political leadership. And it's a bit of a People like, oh, politicians, why do you work with politicians? I work with them because I know there are great people on politics and we can do even more to support them. So maybe, Alberto, you're curious about, uh, I'm curious about when I say, what would the world be like if we loved politicians? I'm curious what you, what came to mind in your mind? Well, we all love politicians, <clears throat> as we know. Now, let me ask you, though, in terms of the political landscape in which you operate and you do so internationally and you touched on the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and there's no doubt we need good policymaking in order to get to those uh, targets for 2030. What's the state of affairs, if we can generalize, with regards to the political landscape and the, let's say, the, the very hard partisan nature that we're, we're seeing today, especially in certain countries? How would you describe the status quo? I would say it's uh, broken with great people in the system. Um, the, I'd say the vast majority of people that go into politics around the world go in because they really care about their communities. Uh, through a report that we've done or research that we've done, at, at any given time, there are 6.2 million politicians in the world. Um, that's not a lot, actually, if you think about uh, the amount of people in the world. And most of them really care, um, but are really under-supported. We can see around the world that um, party enrollment has gone down. So I think political parties are really struggling. And that's one of the things we want to do is across parties. We are completely nonpartisan. We really believe to revitalize democracy. You have to revitalize it across the political spectrum because you need debate and, and democracy to do that. So party um, affiliation and, and engagement is down. And we know politicians are some of the least trusted people in the world. And why is that so? 
Well, I study brain and behavioral science. What we know about um, the brain, it's attracted to bad news. We can have long conversations about social media and what that's doing in the brain. And the media has an incentive to write about the bad news and to hold power to account. So if you put those two things together, kind of business model plus the role of journalism, you only hear about the bad ones. You don't hear about the fantastic people who are behind the scenes because they're behind the scenes doing the work. So I would say while the state of it um, is, is bad and looks bad, underneath it, there are great people going into the system. And I, I know that we have political training programs. We, they run independent, but we coordinate a network of folks in Southern Africa, incredible young people with energy to go in and work on the continent and really work on local and national politics. In the Caucasus, so um, Azerbaijan, Armenia, um, and Georgia, a state, you know, the situation there is... Uh, um, a bit volatile. So how do they across generations look at politics in that region? Portugal, fascinating country with entrepreneurship. How do they take that energy and bring that into politics as they celebrate their 50th anniversary of democracy? Sweden, which, you know, to a lot of people, everyone thinks everything's great in Sweden all the time, super underrepresented um, from people from migrant backgrounds. And then in Paraguay, a country maybe we don't think about much, but the, the challenge in Paraguay, which is a challenge in many of our Western democracies, is that the rural people feel out of touch because so many of the jobs have moved into the city. And in their first cohort, they got um, half of their cohort elected of rural folks into politics to really get them engaged in a new way. So I get to be on the ground sort of seeing this energy to make change. And what we do is first just open the possibility that politics is a pathway where you can go make change at scale. You know, I'm really struck that, you know, we have philanthropy and all these folks thinking, oh, we stay outside of politics. We don't do politics. And if you look at the L.A. Unified School District, um, their budget, I think for one year, it's either one or two years, is the entire endowment size of the Ford Foundation. So if you want to make scale with your philanthropy, unless you're engaged in government and politics in some way, I'm not even talking about, you know, I'm not talking about paying for politicians, none of that, just making sure that people in the system are equipped it's kind of, it's not a good investment. It, it, you have to hedge a little bit, right? You have to look at the pipes for how you're investing your philanthropic dollars. No, I, I like how you're touching on, on the relative small size of philanthropy. And I think we had Kat Rischetta on the show from the Center of High Impact Philanthropy at the University of Pennsylvania. She said something along the lines of what you just mentioned here, that the Gates Foundation could not afford the education budget of a single U.S. state for more than two years. That gives you an idea of, of what's going on. You touched on something a little bit earlier, which I, I want to just probe a little bit. Are things as fragmented as we or the general public or the media perceive it to be and the political landscape? And by that, I mean, I just finished listening to a, a great podcast episode from The Economist with a U.S. senator named Tim Scott, who's a Republican. And he said, you know, media needs to monetize this conflict. And uh, and he and I not to plug another podcast, but you should take a listen because it's a Republican senator. But actually, I think he would resonate with people across the aisle, as it were. Um, does media need to monetize conflict, and is that then possibly hampering how we, as a general public, perceive the the fractures in in, in politics? Yeah, I mean. This is a complicated question to answer globally because there are, you know, different things happen in different places. But 
overall, what I will say is there is definitely major disagreements on many topics across almost all parties. That's pretty normal. The, um, the energy, the anger, the violence around it, that's the part that is difficult. What I think we can be focused much more on is what brings us together. So a great organization called More in Common that was co-founded by a bunch of folks I know who are looking at what are the things that we agree on and can that be the starting point? And one of the main thrusts of our program um, funded by the Bernard Van Leer Foundation, um, which we know in common, they realized that we can't advance peace and early childhood education unless we address polarization. And so we have a deep module in our work, and we offer this up for other folks if they're interested in um, simulations, a three-day boot camp on how do you really advance the public interest in times of polarization? That's the type of political work that we're doing with folks. So you bring people across political spectrums together and say, you're going to be in Congress or Parliament or City Council. What can you agree on? And how do you disagree peacefully and with dignity? And we spent a lot of time like re, re, um, letting people know that you can um, be a statesman. You don't just have to be at loggerheads and, and yelling all the time. And I do want to say, Alberta, I, I, I do, and maybe this is my inner American. I've been living in Europe for a long time, but I go back to kind of, there's a bit of personal responsibility around um, what we ingest and what we believe and how much balance we put in our own life. You know, I'm very careful, and it sounds like you are, to not just listen to the media that is from my, my point of view. I go and I search out other perspectives. And I'm very careful when I only see conflict and I don't go and say, what do we have in common? So I think there's some role that each of us listening can play to go and just really be open-minded to other perspectives. There are some lines that people don't want to cross on human rights, on, on violence. I completely agree with that. But I think all of us can stretch a little bit more and maybe talk a little bit less and listen a little bit more deeply. And that's a big part of the soft skills we teach. Like, how do you deeply listen when you feel threatened? You know, these are skills that we would hope we learned in kindergarten, but we know now we need lifelong learning for all of us. Same with politicians. They need to have lifelong learning, too. So that's what we're really focused on. Uh, great. Now, if we go beyond things one step further, so we let's say we, we established that commonality and we managed to get people from diverse uh, backgrounds and viewpoints together and to have frameworks to understand each other and frameworks to disagree with each other as well, yes. um, which would be great. If we go, if we put that as a placeholder, and then we say uh, we look at the world of philanthropy, we we look at the world that needs of people who are really driven to improve our reality and hopefully achieve the sustainable development goals. There are a lot of interventions that happen, a lot of evidence that's created on what works and what doesn't, and there's a whole body of knowledge. And I know we had a, a mutual friend of ours came on the show here a little while ago, the CEO of Education.org, uh, Rhonda Grubb-Sakari who was really talking about the gap between the evidence and the body of evidence and policymaking and getting that evidence in front of policymakers at the time when they are making those policy decisions. How are you finding things there? What are the gaps and what can be done to resolve some of those gaps? Oh, it's such a great question. And it, it's so fun with our work at the foundation, um, helping politicians deeply geek out on policy, because that's not something that normally happens um, in your political training, right? It's really about how to get elected, give a speech. So this is this is the topic I'm interested in, because you do politics to do policy, right? So when we went to, um, uh, when we started Apolitical, my co-founder, Robin Scott, who's a brilliant human being and a, and a tech entrepreneur, 
we really thought the problem we'd be solving for policymakers was that problem. It was how do you get the evidence to them at the right time? So instead of thinking that was the problem, you do what you do as a tech entrepreneur, as just an entrepreneur, and you go out and you ask your users, what problem do you have? Not what problem do you want to solve for them? And what basically they said for us, old, young, every type of diversity you can imagine, city government, national government, all of it. They said, there's so much information out there. Um, in fact, one third of the World Bank's reports aren't even clicked on once, not even by the author or, or the author's mother, right? There's lots of information. Um, and some of that information is good, but often we don't know where to find it or how to find it. It's not curated. Yes, that's a problem. But what we need more first is this goes to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which has been debunked, but you know what I mean? Like we need the sense of belonging. We need the sense of inspiration and we need some skills that we don't have to even get us to the place where we can get to the evidence. And so that's really what the company is about is that we've built this global peer-to-peer -peer learning network where they can say, okay, yes, we're in this together. We know evidence-based policy is really important. We know where we can find it, but it's not enough, Alberto, to find evidence-based policy. You need to talk to someone who has actually tried to implement that. So that's where we're a little bit like, you know, LinkedIn meets Quora, right? Where you can say, okay, who's worked on this policy? And can I talk to you about how you put that early childhood program in Jamaica and how that might transfer or not to what we're doing in uh, the South Bronx or into Lagos? So I think one of the things our very rational minds think is if you give them information, it will, you know, they'll have everything they need. They don't. They need more than that. They need a sense of belonging. They need a community. They need safe places to ask, how do I do that? And they need translation from their peers. So that's really what we, we are doing at Apolitical. And you know, we've learned that the hard way, you know, we, we, we thought just give them the fact sheet where the evidence is, that's not enough. They really need a community of practice and they need to be respected and honored for their work as, as public servants. And beyond the translation of the science into a language that everybody can understand, or at least a politician or policymaker could understand, uh, what about the framing of the arguments that the evidence puts forward? So forget about the translation itself, but what about the framing? And I know we can talk, if we're t t touching on early childhood, things like brain architecture, toxic stress, these are, these are phrases that arguably came out of a sort of framing exercise. Yeah, language really matters. I, um, I, was, I got into brain and behavioral science because first I wanted to work in politics because I thought that was the highest place to help most people. I love politics. What if we all loved politics and politicians, right? What if we held them up the way we hold our sports stars? Imagine um, it would attract different people to the mm -hmm. system as well. Um, but I realized it's not the best ideas that win or the best people that win. It's the best sold people and ideas. And that kind of makes people on the other end, oh, that's gross. I don't want to sell. But there's all something's always being sold to you. I, there's always a default position. This is Cass Sunstein's work and, and Richard Thaler's work and Nudge, right? We, we know there's always um, a default. So something's always being sold to you in some sort of way. So that's when I decided, okay, how do I, how do I learn how to frame um, topics and, and issues that are important that people um, can understand? And I worked with folks like George Lakoff and um, studied um, 
Danny Kahneman and Richard Thayer and Cass Sunstein and David Halperin and all of these, and Iris Bonet, all of these great, um, it started off in behavioral um, economics, but there's also a lot to learn from psychology and social marketing and traditional marketing. So I spent a lot of my life doing that and, and framing really does matter. Like take, for example, one of the things I find on countries or cities that tend to work best um, in terms of inclusive and just functional is if there's a clear sense of what are the values that really drive that place? And is there a common understanding of what those values are? So is it fairness? Is it safety? What's really embodied? And if you have those values up, then the policy can come from those values, right? And how you talk about things matter. I This is a very crazy story about me, but I ran for president on a reality TV show um, on which, Showtime. Which, which reality TV show? It was called American Candidate. Um, I was younger without any gray hair and I traveled the country in a bus and kissed babies and gave speeches. And one of my political consultants who has a different political point of view, but we were assigned consultants for the show is a brilliant show um, done by a guy named RJ Cutler, who's up for an Oscar and is a very serious guy. Um, took me into a room, all the candidates into the room where we were dial tested. So you would give a speech and if people liked you, they would dial you up. And if they disliked you, they would dial you down. And at first I gave this speech that was like a barn burning speech, you know, rah, 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 and very polarizing speech. Um, and then he said, hey, Lisa, if you talk about values and you change the order of the arguments you make, you don't have to change any of your positions. But if you find the common ground, I guarantee you can win this win this episode. So I did that and I won the episode and I learned a lot really practically. Um, and that, that that was the lesson. It wasn't about winning the episode. I learned about how you find the common ground and generally find it. Don't find it because you want to trick someone. You find it because you believe that if we come together, we can solve problems. And, you know, I know some of the people listening right now, particularly my American friends, I've been out of the U.S. and I know the U.S. is so polarized right now. Like Lisa, that's magical thinking. I'm a I'm an optimist with low expectations, and I have to hold on to the belief that we will get through this time. And I'm really drawn by, you know, the words of Martin Luther King or John Lewis or even Barack Obama when they when they go low, we go high. And I really want to um, keep us high. Um, and that's the sort of politicians that we're looking at across parties. How do we stay high? We may disagree on the substance, but we are going to respect each other and follow the norms of how it is to 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 live with one another. And and I I'm not giving up on that, Alberto. I'm really believing that's possible still. I love the optimism. I really do, and I share it. By the way, the um, there's another hurdle though. So let's get we let's say we get everybody in the room. We find a common framework to understand each other, to agree and disagree. We translate the evidence and we also frame things so that um, we driving forward behavioral change as well. There's one aspect though that we haven't tackled, which is about the, uh, the, the disconnect between the evidence and the expected benefit to society and positive outcomes and how that aligns or doesn't align with election cycles. Mm. Give us a little bit of a flavor for that, because a lot of the times, if again, if we're looking at early years, early childhood education, um, the payout rates for some of these intangible investments isn't aligned with the four-year election cycle of a politician. Well, number one, um, I think one of the things that has to happen, and I hear this all the time and I believe it, 
people are like, Lisa, why do you put good people in a broken system? And I said, well, the only way to fix a system is to get, get a lot of good people in the system at the same time, unless you want something violent. And I don't, and I don't think the rest of us do. And part of that fixing is looking at how do we change politics so there's a bit more alignment with how the human brain works, right? And, and we have 18th century politics at best. So what I'm saying about getting new people, and not just new, there are great people in the system already, but we need to reform politics. And again, I'm not Pollyanna that this is easy, but we need to reform it across the board that speaks to how the brain works. And the brain likes more immediate rewards. That's part of the challenge. That's the human challenge that we that we all have. I remember I was sitting at a very fancy um, global meeting with people from around the world in all different um, fields. And I, I was sitting next to a, a minister, um, two ministers uh, who were working on the same portfolio, basically like social policy um, in their countries. I said, what's the one thing you wish academics would do when they developed their, their policy? And these were very informed um, people. They happen to be both men who knew policy, like we're kind of geeks about policy, which can happen. Um, and these were political people. And they said, I wish every um, uh, policy that gets to me comes with a poster. And I said, poster, what do you mean by a poster? I don't have to necessarily show that everything is done by the time of my four years, but I have to show progress and that we're acting on it. And what I would say the new poster in the 21st century is, this was about a decade ago, is you want to as much as you can co-create with your communities what that policy looks like. So you might take some great evidence that comes from academia and then you take it to the community and say, okay, in our context, how do, how do we work that? Which goes against like this obsession with scale because it slows things down because you have to think about how to, how to put it in context. But I'm seeing great government and great politics be much more co-generative um, so that people have buy-in. And, and if they're co-generative, like if, they, if we build it together, then there's a little bit more patience in the system because they understand, oh, we're going to plant the shade tree that it's not going to grow up until my kids are gone. But I know that's good for our communities to do that. And they're part of those decision-making. And the work on participatory budgeting, the work on citizen assemblies, it's all great, but it does not substitute for continuing to invest in political leaders who think that's great as well. One of our advisors is a politician who's the Minister of um, Culture and uh, Arts for Portugal, and she brought participatory budgeting um, into the city of Lisbon. And they were like, oh, you know, we need to do more of it and faster. And she said, we're going to stop and do participatory budgeting in schools without technology, where kids put the ballot box in about how they want to spend their money. Because we need to create democratic cultures from the very beginning. We need to invest in this co-creation. This was a politician that could have gotten more votes going somewhere else, but she was planting shade trees under which she will never sit again. That's the sort of politicians we need back and we need to have their backs. And we need to send her a thank you card and say, Thank you for your long-term investment in our community. We're responsible for the politicians we get in most of our democracies. Some of them, there's war and violence and corruption at levels that I can't even begin. But in many of the democracies we're talking about, we are getting the politicians we deserve and we can change that. And just one just really interesting thing, we're back to policymaking. We're running an exchange for with the Gates Foundation. Um, so the Gates Foundation has um, been very supportive of the Generation Equality Forum. Gender equality and climate are the two big pillars that we're working on um, at Apolitical and, and the foundation, because we see them as the force multipliers and equity in general. 
and um, intersectional equity. And so we run this exchange. We do lots of online learning on um, gender-based violence and economic justice and all, all of the big gender topics. And the number one thing we hear from policymakers in our exchange, because we run a, um, an exchange for about 50 people doing this in government, how do I get buy-in in government, right? So we're all the academics and philanthropy thinking, if we craft the great policy, we can take it in and it will happen and it will scale. And the people inside the system need the soft skills and how to get buy-in across the silos in government to do it, which is why we need to invest in great people in government or else all the investment in policy development, it falls apart because they don't know how to build buy-in or they can't communicate and they want to learn. So I'm excited about some of these things we've untapped, not by ourselves. Many other people are doing this OECD or DEMOS, but we're really working on helping those people get the skills to get to that policy with their poster and their participation. So when are we going to be seeing you running for politics besides mm. Showtime? Mm. Well, um, I, I really enjoyed um, running for fake president of the United States. Um, I, I didn't love the really difficult situations that it puts you in. I, I didn't mind being on camera all the time because I'm transparent. I don't have any secrets. I loved kissing babies. I loved hearing the problems of people. I hated that they had the problems. So I have this, this desire in me to do it. I think the questions for me are, what's the best use of my skills? Is it to, re I have, I want to positively impact 10% of all politicians in the world. So that's about 620,000 by 2030 aligned with the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. Um, is that the better use for the world of my time? Or do I go back to Washington State, the only place I would ever run for office? Because I don't need to be a politician. I want to serve the people and the land I love. And it would be going back to Washington to do that. I keep my eye open for that. Um, but I want to be genuine and heartfelt and supported by the people. And I love talking to people from different political parties. I love finding what brings us together. Again, I'm not naive, but I can hang out with truckers, to you know, uh, the, the most creative arts people. That's the space. I, I actually worked in a pit crew growing up I, with race car drivers. I, I've been. I, I, I like the diversity of of what politics brings. So I, I'm hoping that there might be an opportunity. But if not, I'm going to help get great people elected. Excellent. How did you get into all of this, by the way? So give us a little bit of a flavor for your uh, your your professional trajectory and and your personal narrative. Well. I think I have a triangle basically um, that I've kind of sussed out after all of these years. So one part of the triangle was that um, I'm the benefit of very boring sounding legislation called Title IX that's very important to the Olympics that, that are on right now and to so many sports. So basically great women like Billie Jean King and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and others said um, they worked on legislation that said if schools wanted federal money, they had to give equipment and facilities and time equal to boy and girls. So I grew up as an athlete. My nickname was Animal. I played volleyball, basketball, softball, and soccer. I found my confidence, my strength, my desire to win my competition in sports. So that's one part of the triangle. I love winning. The second part of the triangle, and you learn to lose graciously. The second part of the triangle is I went to church every Sunday with my grandmother, Doris. She grew up, my dad grew up in public housing. So there was one bus that went around the neighborhood that took her. She was Catholic, but it was Protestant. So I grew up going to a Protestant church. And at church, you get taught, at least mine, 
that it's about serving other people. How do you be part of something bigger than yourself? So if so far I've got the triangle of winning and helping people. And the last part, I've just really realized I'm in German, we call it an Arbeitskind. So basically means like kid of working class and like first generation going to college. And my parents two weeks out of the month dropped me off around 5.30, 5 a.m. in the morning at a babysitter's who I love, Mrs. Fedek. She's passed away too. But um, there were no cartoons on and she put me in front of the TV and Good Morning America and all these news programs. And so I saw the world out there and foreign policy and war and and healthcare debates. And so if you put those triangles together, you've got a kid who loves winning, who wants to help people, who understands that the world is bigger than just her little circle. And so politics was the only career path that ever made. I've never had to choose. I've always wanted to be in politics and policy in some way. It's taken some different forms here or there. But I, it sounds as cheesy as it is, but I've I've always had a calling um, around using this space in different ways. And and this first political training institute I founded 25 years ago, co-founded in Washington State. Um, we have 25 classes of people, and we have the most diverse people going through these programs. You know, so I I love planting shade trees under which I will never sit because it's the only way to I think really love one another um, and 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 do that work. Very fortunate that you, you had that clarity of thought and the context around you was such that it was conducive to what you're doing today. Lucky. And, uh, and yeah, very much, right? Not, 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 not a usual thing. No. And by the way, the German reference, just, I don't know if we mentioned this, but you are based in Berlin right now, hence the German reference. Tell me a little bit about, uh, before we wrap up, what's the, the key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? I, I want to go full circle. Um, uh, and really, the takeaway for me is think about what the world would look like if we loved politicians and what would need to change in order for us. What would need to change is you might need to think about running for office yourself as a, as a pathway to make change. You need to support great people, potentially across political parties, so we can reform democracy from the inside out. And most of all, I remember I was at a, um, a dinner um, next to Bill Moyers. And for those of you who don't know who he is, he's this very iconic American journalist in public journalism. And he really inspired me a lot. And he said to me, Lisa, um, my biggest fear about the world, we've got all these problems going on, but once you swallow the pill of cynicism, it's very hard to undo that. And I guess why I love politics, and this is my final ask is, be you you can uh, be skeptical um i prefer to be optimistic with low expectations but we have to believe that things are possible we have to just totally go for it we have to ted lasso for any of those who are watching this our way out of this right i really really believe that that is possible so I, the one to ask is stay optimistic and believe that politics can be better it has to we have no other choice excellent I was not expecting a Ted Lasso reference on the call to action, which is great. Um, I'm an athlete, Alberto. I love Ted Lasso. Listen, Lisa, it's really been wonderful hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today. Uh, good seeing you again. And thank you for joining us and sharing a little bit of your insight and so much of your passion. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great conversation with Lisa Witter, Chief Executive Officer of the Apolitical Foundation and co-founder 
of Apolitical. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already, and do visit our website at Ligi.org, that's L-I-D-J-I.org, for information on more than 150 interviews with remarkable thought leaders in the world of philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. Leave us a rating and a review. It's always very much appreciated, and I'll catch you next week.